Good morning. Very, very excited about the Institute and some of the changes that we've made and uh, the work that Stephen is doing on that. He's doing a great job, isn't he? Uh, very encouraged by you, brother. And where are you? There he is in the back. He's hiding. Very encouraged by his work. Uh, I love how the Lord is putting our church together and raising up people with their strengths to help in areas where uh, we all can help each other and, and equip the saints better. Uh, very thankful for uh, both Stephen and his father for, and Ronaldo for their the work in helping uh, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So we're back in Acts today. Uh, there was a great... Uh, uh, rejoicing that was going in the hearts, right? Everybody's glad to be back in the book of Acts, right? Good, good. Well, I am looking forward to this chapter especially and spending more time here. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, One of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts, so you never know, it might be a quick one or it might be a slow one. We're just going to go with what the Lord has for us today. Jesus gave a perfect definition of eternal life as he prayed to the Father on the night before his death on the cross. He said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what believing and believers experience, a growing knowledge and understanding of God, his and His Son, whom He sent. A relationship with God, based on being delivered from the power and penalty of sin, a true biblical church is established on these saving relationships with God. A relationship that grows in an experiential understanding and knowledge of the triune God. This is what eternal life is. There are many churches that have been established in America. The highest estimate I saw online was 330,000 churches in America. 330,000. I I would imagine it might even be more than that. Uh, That was about four or five years ago. But the overwhelming majority of these churches appear to not be founded on the same saving relationship with Jesus. How do I know this? Well, listen to this quote from a research institute on the health of the church in America. Quote, Although people cite their primary reasons for attending church as growing closer to God and learning more about Him, Barna Group finds such closeness is a rare occurrence. Fewer than two out of ten churchgoers feel close to God on even a monthly basis. Additionally, while Almost two-thirds of those who value church attendance go to learn more about God. Fewer than one in ten, six percent, who have ever been to church say they learned something about God or Jesus the last time they attended. In fact, the majority of the people, 61%, say they did not gain any significant or new insight regarding faith when they attended their church last. 61% didn't get anything when they went to church last time. Didn't learn anything. 6% say they learned something more about God last time they went. 6%. That's 
That's, that's a problem, would you not say? I think it speaks to the church in America. This doesn't sound like people who know God and are growing in their understanding of Him. What do you think? Could it be that the vast majority of the professing churches in America are not founded on the same truth as the early churches in the book of Acts? A key element in the establishment of a biblical church is a genuine salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. A biblical church is made up of saved people. There must be people who have been saved from sin. There must be people who have been saved from evil influences. There must be people who have been saved from death and judgment. A biblical church is based on salvation, genuine biblical salvation through faith in Christ alone. A biblical church is a group of people who have been delivered from God's judgment, who have been delivered from Satan's influence, who have been delivered from their own sinful ignorance, and who know the peace of God. A biblical church is a congregation of people who have been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin, who now walk in grace and peace, and who are learning and growing in the knowledge of Him. That's what biblical salvation is. A biblical church is a body of people who have been saved and who, who now meet together to edify one another and build each other up. And we meet to serve one another. And we meet to continue to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Folks, that's why you come to the Grace Bible, right? You want to know God more. And I hope I'm delivering and we are delivering on that. If we're not, leave this church. Go somewhere else. It is our goal to teach you more about who God is. That's really the main thing. It's not how flamboyant we are, not whether or not I can walk around with no notes and uh, be a great motivational speaker. I want you to know God more, and that's all that really matters. Today we're going to examine the establishment of a biblical church. In Acts 16, we see three main salvation accounts that help to establish the church in Philippi. These three deliverance accounts are not all of the conversions in this early church in Philippi, but they are the focus of Luke. In fact, the establishment of the church in Acts is the most detailed explanation of a church start in the book of Acts up to this point. He spends the most time explaining this church. It's interesting, we have an epistle written to this same church. Philippians. So there's a lot of space in the Bible on this church in Philippi. I want to give you a brief review of the context of the church plant. Remember in our map, we talked about this last time we were here, that they walked 500 miles, God telling them, stop, don't go into Asia, don't go into Messenia, and then he tells them through a vision, go to Macedonia. Finally, after a 200-mile boat trip that with the wind behind their backs, they went straight to Neapolis and they had an eight-mile walk up to Philippi. Philippi is is in modern-day Greece. Philippi was a pagan city. They were godless, idol-loving people. This is evident by the lady who was demon-possessed in our events today. She was influential in the city. 
How do I know this? Well, because she brought much profit to her masters. That means lots of people went to her for, to get their fortune told to them. She was, quote-unquote, a fortune teller. This was a city being led by demons, folks. In this case, it was a demon associated with a snake, a python, literally, with spirit of python. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Philippi was a Roman colony. Philippi was made famous by a historic battle that took place near it 50 years or more before the missionaries arrived in the city. Mark Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius. That was Those two last guys were Julius Caesar's uh, assassins. So the city was made famous by this battle where Antony and Octavian won and restored Rome's glory. This city was all about allegiance to the Roman Empire and Caesar. If there wasn't any rebellion in the colony, they could lose their status with Rome, and that would mean higher taxes and repercussions. So they were dedicated to Rome at all costs. Nothing was going to cause them to lose their colony status. They didn't want to have to pay taxes, so they would make sure of that. Despite this context, Philippi was where the Lord determined to plant his first church in Europe. That's what we have. This is modern-day Greece, like I said. Today we'll examine three salvation accounts that helped to establish this church. It should be our hope that God would display himself in our church like this church in Philippi. It should be our goal to participate in bringing others to Christ like these missionaries did. Again, we want to be an evangelistic church, don't we? I mean, we're equipping you for the work of ministry, and the ministry is for you to go out and make disciples and to evangelize, just like this church. Today we see the foundation of a biblical church is a group of people delivered by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a church is. Very interestingly, so contrary to the purpose-driven model of today, We want lots of people. They want lots of people in their church. They don't care if they're believers or not. And they want as many people as they can get in there, and they will say whatever they can to keep them there. That's why they give away motorcycles. And they say whatever they can in order to get lots of people in there. Listen, this might sound a little harsh, but we only want believers here. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Now, what if you're not a believer? We want you to become a believer. (laughs) We want you to become a believer and trust in Christ so that you will be a part of our body. Because we're here to worship the one true God. It's about Christ. Ultimately, you understand the church is for the believer. And we are trying to equip you for the work of ministry to go out and make disciples. Then bring them in. My messages are not all these hyper-evangelistic messages. I was told numerous times when I was growing up in the, my faith by pastors that Sunday morning was for the unbeliever. It was, you come to church because I'm supposed to give a very evangelistic message and you guys are supposed to, the congregation is supposed to bring all the unbelievers into the room. You bring the unbelievers in here and the pastor will give the gospel because Sunday morning is for the unbeliever. Beloved, that is not true. 
That is not what the church is about. We get together because we have already been saved, and that's why this church was established on saved people. And then you go out and share the gospel with people so others come to know him. Our job is to equip you to go do that. Our job is not to get people saved. Okay, you understand. So we see this. They're establishing a church by getting people saved, but once they're saved, that's the church. There's the foundation. It's based on saved people. So let's look at these three salvations accounts. First, the salvation for the Gentile businesswoman. That's found in verses 11 to 15. We talked briefly about this last time we were there. The first convert is Lydia. She was a seller of purple fabrics from Thyatira. And as I mentioned last time, and it is very profound, she was from Asia, the very place that God told them not to go into. So God has them go, stop, stop, go to Macedonia, meet a lady that was from the place that I told you to stop, don't go into. Isn't this the way our Lord works? She was a businesswoman, a seller of purple fabrics. This was the fabric of royalty. It was expensive. It was our polo of the day. Most likely she was either a widow or divorced, as her husband is not mentioned, yet her household believed. She was described as a worshiper of God. This is a phrase for a Gentile God-fearer. So she had a theological foundation. However, she had not been given the gospel of Jesus yet. So she was not converted. The missionaries were speaking to the women. Later it is described in the same passage, the things spoke by Paul. So the conversation came as a result of speaking the gospel to these ladies. This was the ongoing dialogue. Just as Paul states in Romans 10, we we'll all know this verse, Romans 10, 14 to 15, How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So they were speaking to the ladies. The ladies were assembled at the place of prayer. They came together. What, what we have here is a case of providential seekers. These were ladies that God had begun to cultivate the ground of their hearts. No, they were not saved because they did not have the gospel yet. That's important. They aren't saved yet, but God was working. But these were some God respecters, for lack of a better term. The Lord had given them a healthy respect for God. But all they knew was they deserved, he deserved honor, and they were lost. They saw the great chasm between them and God, especially being Gentiles. They were told they couldn't participate in a lot of the worship. But they needed hope. In some ways, Lydia appears to be like Cornelius in chapter 10. Remember we went over him? Maybe there are some like Lydia in this room today. Again, I'm not saying if you are here and you're not a believer, uh, you need to get up and leave right now. (laughs) We want you to come to Christ. You need to know Christ. You need to know God. You know that His Word is true, but you have no assurance that you'll go to heaven or be with God forever. You see your need of a Savior, but 
You don't have that joy of peace with God found through true repentance and faith in Him. There's hope for you, folks. Turn to Jesus Christ. Confess your sin, your need of a Savior, and trust in Him. Repent and believe in Him. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Turn from your sinful lifestyle and embrace the one and only who can save you from bondage to sin and penalty for sin. Commit to Jesus. He's your hope, right? Trust Him. Notice the salvation accounts continue. It says they were listening to the message. This listening is emphasized by Luke and then brought up again in Acts 17. If you look over there in Acts 17, 10 and 11, you see now they, the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Boy, I can't wait to preach that passage. Doesn't that sound like a good one? These were listening ladies back in Acts 16. I want us to be a listening church, listening to the Word of God. This is crucial. We should be all about the Word of God. Friends, salvation comes from hearing the Word of God. It comes through embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. Thinking on the problem with Christianity in America again, it really is a twofold problem. The Word of God is often not being taught in churches. Pastors are failing. They're not proclaiming the Word of God. And second, when it is being taught, people aren't listening. They're ignoring what he's saying. Lydia was a convert because she was listening. Just a side note, friends, when the Word of God is being preached or read or spoken in church or wherever, it should get our full attention, shouldn't it? We should be fully engaged. We should be listening carefully. We should be doing everything we can to help others also to hear it. You know, this is the Word of God. It deserves our full attention, doesn't it? Whenever the Bible's spoken, you need to go, everything doesn't matter, I want to hear what it's saying. Because God is speaking to us. So I want to give a little exhortation to everyone here. I want you to help your fellow believers. Just a few practical requests here. Is there any way we can arrive on time to church? I know this is harsh. I'm sounding a little legalistic. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not setting a bar in order for you to jump over that you can't reach and or trying to elevate myself. I'm doing this for you. I'm calling you guys. If you're on time, what it does is helps to focus your attention and get your heart ready to hear the Word of God. We prepare for all kinds of other things. When you go to work, you prepare and you dress and you look nice. Prepare your hearts. Come ready to hear the Word of God. And it helps your neighbor. I was shocked watching the live stream on vacation. How many people walk in in the middle of service and walk out in the middle of service right there in the preaching of the Word of God. People are getting up, walking around. I know at this point some of you are in the room, oh no, I've got to use the restroom. (laughs) What am I going to do? The baby's crying. Look, I'm not trying to say that, you know, things happen. I understand that. But try to use the restroom before you come in. (laughs) 
Right? I mean, is that crazy? Is that a bad thought? I mean, I'm just trying to help you guys. Because we want to hear the word, right? We want to focus in on it. And when we're walking around and having all these things, it's very hard to stay focused. And most of all, for your neighbor. Right? The one we love. In other words, take note of your fellow believers. Let's listen to the word of God. What do you say? Try to avoid distracting them. If you want some specifics, ask, ask the people around you. How about that for a wild thought? We want everyone to listen to the word, like the ladies down by the riverside, right? I want to listen. How about you? So we have seen the human responsibility of uh, preaching the message and listening to the message, but notice it's also the sovereignty of God working. The Lord opened her heart. God enabled Lydia to understand the message and to apply it to her heart. This was giving her spiritual ears to hear the truth. This is a truth every disciple maker must understand and embrace. Every one of you must know this. We proclaim the truth and hopefully people listen. And only God changes hearts. You get that, right? It is important to note God's providence works in us to proclaim Him. Right now, God's providence is working for me to say what I'm saying. And it's also working to have you hear what you're hearing. But ultimately, the only one that converts a heart is God. He's the one that opens the heart. So God opened her heart to respond to the message. Lydia gave attention to the message. And she embraced the message as her own. This response is conversion. How do we know this is conversion? Well, real simple. Obedience and love is on display immediately. That's what happens. How many times have we said this? I know you've heard me say it before, but oh, so important this is. Obedience and love flows from a heart that has been converted. That's what happens. Lydia obeyed in baptism. Again, a heart that is converted obeys. We talk about this at nauseum, but it is so important. Scripture makes this overwhelmingly clear. Faith that, that does not obey is not saving faith. But faith that obeys God is saving faith. I think we all too often make faith a mental assent. Anybody else like that? Just saying something is true doesn't save us, beloved. Saying something is true and then ignoring what the master says to do is obviously not genuine commitment. I'm still often shocked, aren't you? By people who say, I love God. And you hear them worship. You hear them. You talk with them. And they talk about how much they love God. And the next thing you know, you can't find them with radar. Where are they? They don't want to obey God. They don't want to be around God's people. They hate God. What's happened? This has got to be the most grieving part of ministry for me. It's got to be grieving for all of you too, doesn't it? Isn't it? People we love. Well, I think ultimately this comes down to us and the people that we teach not really understanding what saving faith is, not really understanding what repentance is, and not really understanding that a heart change means obedience. 
and love. She got baptized. Why? Because she was converted. She was obeying. It's natural. Next we see love. She loved. Her hospitality is obvious, isn't it? Look at it. Sacrificial love towards the missionary. She said, come into my house. Brenda talked about this at Ladies Bible Study yesterday. This is evidence of a heart change. The heart of a believer says, come in. Come into my home. Come into my life. Come fellowship with me in Christ. Come participate with me in the gospel ministry. The heart of a believer longs to share. Share Christ with others. Share our possession with others. Share our time with others. Share our compassion with others. Share our very hearts with others. That's what believers do. We share ourselves with others. And we say, come in. That's what she did. She was really converted. Why was Philippi such a great church? Why were the Philippians so amazing? Well, because they were based on true converts that said, come in. They loved. They were obedient. I was so humbled by one part of uh, Elizabeth Elliot's memorial service that I watched with Brenda this week. If you all don't know Elizabeth Elliot, you need to know her. Every lady in the place should read Passion and Purity, and everybody should read uh, Through Gates of Splendor. It's the story, it, Through Gates of Splendor is the story of her missionary husband, Jim Elliott, who was murdered by the Aka Indians. She took her little daughter and another lady into the same village in order to lead them to Christ just a year or so later. This was love, folks. This is what True converts do. They do crazy things like love and share Christ. But the one part that really shocked me, that was really interesting to me, was her living arrangements while she was around the Akas. She lived in tents among the people. They were thatch roof houses that were built. But they had no walls. These, All these Houses, they lived real close. She lived with the Indians with houses with no walls. So every morning she woke to them chanting, doing their chants over and over and over. And with some of the young men in the tribe staring at her. Looking into her house, watching her, waiting for her to arise. When she arose up, they would say, White woman's up. Announce it to the whole place. She had no privacy. None at all. Not only were these the same people, some of the same people that had killed her husband, she was so vulnerable that she exposed herself, allowed herself to be seen by everybody, even at those moments when she woke up. I don't know about you guys. I don't want you at my house when I wake up. (laughs) But she said, come in. Do we say come in? Are we like that?
What drove this woman to act like this? What caused her to love these people like this? The love of God. She knew the gospel. Just like Lydia. She knew the gospel. She knew Christ. She knew the cross of Christ. She knew God loved her and bought her. And she served even what most would call her own enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be a church that loves like this. I want to be a church that loves like this. How about you? Our houses must be each other's houses. Our time must be each other's time. Our possessions must be each other's possessions. This is how a converted heart responds to the gospel. We share ourselves with others. Salvation brings sacrifice. And it's not a burden. It's a privilege. We say, may I lay down my life for you? Why is it? We should all be willing and able to get that knock at the door or that phone call at any moment from anybody. We should be so sacrificial that that's the way we are. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. Friends, our problem is we often apply the Bible backwards, don't we? Let me give you an example. At this point, some of you in the room might be saying in your heart, well, nobody at this church has done that for me. If that is true, then you've missed the whole point of the passage. See, the whole point of the passage is not to say, hey, when's somebody going to start loving me like that lady loved those Indians? See, because we've already been loved like that. If we've already been loved like that, then we aren't looking to get fulfilled from somebody else. We are just looking for opportunities to love others. We need to be like this more, don't we? I think our view of the gospel is way too small still. So Lydia's house became the first church building for the congregation and the missionaries. Notice at the end of the chapter in verse 40, this was most likely the meeting place for the early church. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So they went to Lydia's house when they got out of jail. A church is planted as Lydia and her household are converted to Christ. So the first salvation account in Philippi was Lydia and the Gentile businesswoman. Next we see the salvation for the demonically directed servant. The demonically directed servant. This second salvation account breaks down into two parts. The deliverance and the persecution. The deliverance is found in 16 to 18. Notice again, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, a spirit of python, met us, who was bringing our, her master much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, 
I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. There is some debate over whether or not the demon-possessed lady really became saved to eternal life. But at the very least, we can say that she was saved from demon possession, correct? Delivered from demon possession. I believe Luke assumed she was saved to eternal life, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. But let's start with the deliverance. Notice first, the slave girl's desperate need of deliverance. She was a slave in more ways than one. She had a human master and a demon master. Her human master profited off of her demon master. The spirit of divination, like I said, can be translated as spirit of python. It appears that everyone knew that the woman had this evil spirit. The demon was attributed to a python, which was a Greek god that supposedly guarded the oracle of Delphi. This lady was a medium uh, for an evil spirit. That is, she was the vehicle of ideas for the demon. Remember, demons are invisible, but they were observant, and they are observant. They communicate with other demons. So how could she tell the future? How could she fortune tell? Well, I would argue that demons communicate, and they're able to tell what's going on. If one knows what this guy was doing last night, and he says, I'm going to go do something... All he has to do is then tell the other demon, and she talks to that guy and says, I know what you're going to be doing tomorrow. That's fortune telling. She can see direction by the demon giving her information. Demons don't know the future, but they see what people are saying, and they can influence people's thinking. So just a side note on this, any of you that are ever tempted to go get your fortune read, Throw that thought out. That's foolishness. Do you understand? You're playing with demons, possibly. What in the world would you do that for? And that goes for things like the horoscope, too. I hope you don't read your horoscope. By all means, stay away from anything that's demonic. Does that make sense? Clear. I'd be, you'd be surprised how many people, Christians, read their horoscope every day. Listen, God's ordained will is secret. He doesn't want you to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Just trust him. Does that make sense? Avoid demons. The slave girl was possessed by this demon. And the demon used to instruct her of people's secrets in order to build credibility in her prophecy. Beloved, this is why no believer ever should participate in any of those things. This is messing with the demonic realm. But what was the bottom line for her human masters? Money. She was a possession of those masters, the human masters, so that they could make money off of her. The demon used her to promote their false gods. She was in bondage. A demon was leading this young woman. These events have always intrigued me, though. This one is very interesting. We have the missionaries going to the place of prayer to teach the women who will embrace the truth. But there's this demon-possessed woman that keeps crying out over and over, is the way that's worded. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So what's the big deal? First, 
Here's what's wrong. She was masquerading as wise. Second, she was deceptive. She was a liar. And third, she was distracting from the true messengers to proclaim the gospel. This is typical of demonic activity. What happens is a little bit of truth mixed in with lies in order to be associated with God. The disguise was a setup to deceive any possible followers later. As scripture makes it clear, evil demons disguise themselves as angels of light. This is what was happening here. The demon knew if he could speak a little truth, people would then associate the slave girl with the truth speakers. But then later he could lead possibly some of the disciples away because she had said some truth. Second, she was deceptive. Folks, no matter how you look at this, this is a liar. This woman is possessed and she speaks lies. What were the lies? These men are servants of the Most High God. Is that not true or is it? Is that a true statement? These men are servants of the Most High God. True, right? Sounds like truth to me, but it's not. It's not true. Why isn't it true? Because of the context that it's set in. What? Think about this. This was a pagan country with very, very little theological background. So if she says these men are servants of the Most High God, what would the people have thought? Oh, these guys are servants of Zeus. Or whatever God they had. They would have attributed it to their own gods. The Most High God would have been and was used as a title for their false gods. So it's a lie. But you have to be discerning, right? This is so much like the JWs of our day, the Jehovah Witnesses, right? They come to your door and say, we believe in Jesus. But their Jesus is a different Jesus from the Bible. This is the whole problem that we have when people say, I believe in God. Okay, define him. Who is he? If the God of the Bible is not their God, then they are not following God. They can say to you, they can look at you, you can be in a room and they can say, you're a servant of the Most High God. And you can say, you're a liar. What? Well, yes, I'm a servant of the Most High God, the God of the Bible, but I'm not a servant of the Most High God that's divine by you. Because your God is not my God. Boy, that's harsh, isn't it? It's the truth. And we see this in her second lie. She says... Proclaiming to you the way of salvation. I believe it's better translated here. Proclaiming to you a way of salvation. That's a big difference, isn't it? Some of your Bibles have it in your margin. A way instead of the way. Boy, that's a huge lie. Is that, Im- is that important difference? Yeah. The second says that Christ isn't the only way. He is one way to be saved. The exclusivity of Christ, isn't it? There's nothing new under the sun, is there? Isn't it the same way today? Watch the history of church, and what do we see? 
Always. The exclusivity of Christ is always put down. No, he's not the only way. And then there's the multiple God concept. Painting God out to be one of many gods or God can be whoever you want him to be in your mind. It's always been this way. Now notice the second part. Paul's patient endurance comes to an end. Paul's patient endurance comes to an end. We see this in verse 18. Look at this, verse 18. She continued doing this for many days. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that phrase just jumps off the page at me. But she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Paul didn't immediately cast out the demon. There's a degree of patience here with this man. Many days he listened to this woman do this. It's very interesting. He waiting many days. But like the Lord, he served. Paul, Paul's patience came to an end. And he called on the Lord to eliminate this evil deception. Man, there's some great lessons. Just really neat practical lessons here. Patience, patience is a great thing. But... God's long-suffering patience does have an end. God does not put up with sin forever. Does this make sense, folks? Paul's just showing exactly what his Lord was like. Paul became greatly annoyed and he delivered this servant girl from her demon possession. The phrase means Paul was burdened by the provocative activity to the point that he became greatly disturbed, even irritated. Paul was infuriated by this demon, demon's continual deception. So he was moved to action. So Paul cast out the demon in the authority of Jesus Christ. By the way, that isn't one of those little tack-ons. I cast you out in the name of Jesus. And you just put that little name of Jesus on there and you'll be able to do anything. Like cast out any demons for yourself. That's not what this is saying. Paul is saying in effect... I'm speaking what Jesus wants to happen. Jesus wants this demon out of this woman. I'm speaking under the authority and what Christ wants to be said. By the way, we need to be careful of saying things like that because we are not apostles. At the same time, Christ is the same Christ that's on the throne. As Ephesians 1 talks about, but when... Uh, he's uh, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And Jesus has all things in subjection under his feet. Well, the same is true today. No demon is above Christ's authority. Christ is over all. Now, her master saw something different in this slave girl, didn't they? It appears that it to be permanent. This is why I think that she was truly saved. But if she wasn't saved, the demon could return. We know for a fact that believers, they can't return, right? And if their prophet was lost and it was gone forever, then probably she became a believer. She was one of them, one of the new church members. And the Lord was shown to be over all of this demonic activity. This is exactly what Lydia and the other believers needed to see, didn't they? The authority of Jesus 
transcends even the evil of their community. We need to know that too. Beloved, we need to understand that, but we need to apply that to our heart. When you look around and you see evil winning, it's not winning. Ultimately, God is still sovereign. And God will judge every evil act ever. Do you understand? We need to trust our sovereign, don't we? This goes for our lives too. When we are facing circumstances that appear to contradict the progress of the gospel, we need to know that God both answers prayer and the Lord is patient for only so long. He will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So we must pursue the Lord. Finally, we see the persecution. This is the result. We'll kind of pick this up next week, but let's read this section and we'll close with it. Verse 19, But when her masters saw that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, beloved, we see in this one section, and we'll develop this next week and and look at this a little better. What does giving hope to a slave girl get these men? Persecution. We can slice this and dice this any way we want, but the fact of the matter is, is that God often uses glorious events to be the beginning of a persecution for us. The enemy has a plan in that. The enemy hates to see children of God come to Christ. And he gets angry. But in God's providence, we're going to see, the glorious news is is that through persecution comes even more salvation for the establishment of the church. Folks, I want to be like the Elizabeth Elliots of the world the Johnny Erickson taught us. I want to be like that. How about you? I want to be the people that stand for the truth and proclaim the gospel with boldness and courage, not afraid of what could happen to us. What you're going to see is is that people that are that committed to Christ know the love of Christ, demonstrate the love of Christ in ways that are far beyond anything this world can explain. You see that in what Paul and Silas do in verse 25. We'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us out of the domain of darkness. That you have given us new hearts and new new minds. That we can serve you and love you with all of our hearts, minds, and soul. Lord, we know that we're not perfect. We know that we still stumble and bumble and fumble. And we need you, Father. But we trust you to work. 
We trust you to work in our hearts and to cause us to display the love and grace that you have displayed to us. Oh, Father, help us to be discerning. Help us to be wise. Help us to see the evil for what it is. And help us to avoid temptation. Help us to exalt your name in all circumstances that your providence brings into our life. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.